Thanks, Gary. You did a great job with all of those names. I tried to pick the trickiest passage to, to foil Gary's attempts at reading today, but he proved himself more than worthy. It's an amazing passage, isn't it? An amazing passage uh, today as we look to it together. It got me thinking that um, if it comes to objections to the Christian faith, I reckon one of the laziest claims that uh, people make is, I could never believe in your God because he's too angry. Like, how could God judge anyone? Our senior minister David a few weeks ago shared a story of an academic who, who called God a monster. People say, I can't believe in that sky bully. You've heard objections like this, right? And quite frankly, you could point to passages like today's passage as proof. Because this is a passage where God's judgment comes down. By the end of chapter 39, Jerusalem is destroyed, thousands are dead, and the whole city is set on fire. It's complete devastation. And so people could easily look at this passage and say, yep, here is the angry God who is hell-bent on revenge. He's a monster. He's a thug. The reason I call this objection lazy is that you can really only reach this conclusion if, that's, if you haven't read this passage at all, or if you've only dipped into the sections where the fire is burning. Because if we'd read the passage, we would have heard the surprising voice of someone who offers a summary of God's judgment and why it had to come. And it's not the voice you might expect. It's Nebuzaradan one of the Babylonian commanders who ransacked and destroyed Jerusalem. And his voice is heard in the chapter after the destruction, chapter 40. And this is what he says to Jeremiah. When the commander of the guard found Jeremiah, he said to him, The Lord your God decreed disaster for this place, and now the Lord has brought it. He has done just as he said he would. All this happened because you people sinned against the Lord and did not obey him. And that's remarkable, isn't it? This Babylonian commander says that the destruction that Jerusalem has just suffered has come by the hand of Yahweh. And he even uses the Hebrew name, God's personal name. He says that Hebrew is the one behind it because you Israelites sinned against him. He says God warned you it was going to happen. And then he made it happen. I mean, it's fascinating, isn't it, that this Babylonian guard doesn't say, oh, we won because we were the better army. Or we won because Babylon is the greatest nation in the world and no one can oppose us. No, he says that this judgment has come on you because it is God's judgment. And it's come because you have sinned. And if you like, that's the theme of this section. Judgment of God is here, and God's people deserve it. And so today we're going to look at this large section through the lens of the couple of times where God says, therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says, where he describes sin, and then he says, therefore, I'm bringing this punishment to you. In chapters 34 and 35, the Lord Almighty says, you have not obeyed. 
and you have violated my covenant. In chapters 36 to 38, God says you have not listened and you've not answered my call. You see, judgment is here and God's people deserve it. And as we look at this passage together, we're going to see things that are true for us to be warned about even today as well. It'd be so great if you could have open your Bibles. We're going to be flicking through a few passages, and the first passage to come up will be Jeremiah 34 from verse 12. So you might like to have that open. If you're watching on our live stream, welcome. It's good to have you here with us as well. You might like to click click the link uh, to the uh, Bible Gateway site so you can follow along with the passages uh, as well. And if for whatever reason you need a transcript, because that would help you here in the room to be able to listen then um, we've got our Harry and Poppy who will hand that out if you just need to put your hand up. Just so you know, I put the transcripts out there because I read in the last census that one in five people who live in the city of Ryde don't feel like their English is very good. And so I put a transcript out every time I preach and I make sure there's lots of visuals behind me to make sure that there is never a reason why someone couldn't understand what was going on here as well. That's why we do it. If for whatever reason you need a transcript, please grab one. That's why we printed them. We want everybody to understand what's going on in these passages. How about we get into it? I'm going to pray for us. Our Father, thank you for uh, the wonderful privilege of having your word in front of us today. We thank you that we get to read this hard word and we despair in the face of sin. Father, help us to see how serious your judgment is. And rejoice in how serious your salvation is. And we ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. So first of all, you have not obeyed and you have violated my covenant. That is the charge that God lays against his people. Have a look with me at chapter 34, verse 12. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I made a covenant with your ancestors when I brought them out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I said, every seventh year, each of you must allow any fellow Hebrews who have sold themselves to you. After they have served six years, you must let them go free. Your ancestors, however, did not listen to me or pay attention to me. Recently, you repented and you did what is right in my sight. Each of you proclaimed freedom to your own people. You even made a covenant before me in the house that bears my name. But now you have turned around and profaned my name. Each of you has taken back the male and female slaves you had set free to go where they wished. You have forced them to become your slaves again. In this section here, we get to see the pattern of God's judgment. He specifically says, here is how you have been sinning. And then he says, Therefore, be warned when God says, therefore, because that's not a good thing. Here's how you've sinned. Therefore, this is the judgment that is coming before you. You see, our God is not some random, unknowable, wishy-washy God who does random acts of violence on his people. God has given his word. So his people know exactly what he wants and they can know exactly what they have done wrong and why the judgment is exactly deserved. You see, God is not hell-bent on seeking revenge for his people or sending them to judgment. His people are hell-bent, it seems, on sinning 
and disobeying God. And this is particularly devastating because God and his people have a covenant together that God would be their God and they would be his people. They would receive all the benefits of having a God who loves them and cares for them and provides for them and protects them. And in return, they are asked to be faithful back to God. His covenant was, of course, formalized at Mount Sinai when his people came out of Egypt, as verse 13 says. And God gave them good laws for how to live as his people. The covenant and the laws followed the Israelites when they went into the promised land and established the land as their own. Now, one such law was that they were not going to be slaves again like they were when they were in Egypt. So when an Israelite ran up a debt that they couldn't pay back, they could offer their labor to the person they owed money to in order to be able to pay the money back. Now, that labor may have lasted a month or six months or even a year. But no matter how large the debt was going to be, it could never be more than six years. God's people were not going to be slaves again like they were in Egypt. And here in the passage, God points out that the Jews have not been releasing people after the allotted amount of time, even though that's what the law says, even though they had made a covenant with God to obey him. Well, perhaps surprisingly, this generation goes ahead and does the right thing. In verse 15, God commends this generation for what they did. You see, they repented from this evil. Now, by repenting, it means saying sorry to God and then living in the way that he wants people to live. And so this generation had a big ceremony in the temple courts and they butchered a cow, they divided it in half and the priests walked through the centre of the two halves. After the sacrifice was over, the cow would have been set on fire in the house of God as well. It was an act that symbolically said, God, we make this covenant to you, and if we break it, what we have done to this cow, you can do to us. The hard thing for the Israelites is that their repentance in this generation is shallow. All too soon, they bring back their former slaves and they make them slaves again. We're not told why. Maybe the impending invasion meant that people wanted more slaves to protect their property. It doesn't matter. They have disobeyed God and they have violated the covenant. And so in order to highlight the seriousness of this, uh, in chapter 35, God recalls an earlier story. It happened about 18 years before this section of Jeremiah, about the family called the Rechabites. Now, this family line uh, of the Rechabites, they have an ancestor named uh, Jehonadab. And Jehonadab said to his family, you can't drink wine, you can't have crops, and we have to live in tents. And this family for generations have obeyed that forefather's command. Well, God brings this family into Jerusalem in order to shame the people of Jerusalem. God says to them, like a man made up these commands and their whole family obeys them. I give you my good law and you make a covenant with me and you cannot obey me. You keep disobeying me. 
So then he says in verse 17, Therefore, therefore, this is what the Lord says. You have not obeyed me. You have not proclaimed freedom to your own people. So now I proclaim freedom to you, declares the Lord. Freedom to fall by the sword, plague and famine. Down to verse 21. I will deliver Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials into the hands of their enemies who want to kill him. To the army of the king of Babylon, who has withdrawn from you. I'm going to give the order, declares the Lord, and I will bring them back to this city. They will fight against it, take it, and burn it down. God's people have sinned and rejected God, so God is going to reject them. Jerusalem will face the fire. Well, fire. It's uncontrollable. It's absolutely destructive. In Australia, the land of bushfires, we know this better than anyone else. When a bushfire is raging, it destroys everything in its path. And once it gets going, you can't stop it. God's anger here is likened to a fire like that. But God's anger isn't random. It's not uncalculated. It comes in response to sin. God is all-knowing and he's a fair judge. You can't fool him. And so there's lessons for us as we read this passage to think on and pray on here as well. You see, our repentance can't be shallow. It's no good, good saying to God, oh, sorry, God, and then heading back to the sins that we were committing and apologizing for and just beforehand. It doesn't work. And our obedience can't be shallow either. It's not real just to come along to church and to sing Cornerstone when your hearts aren't in it. To mouth the words of a confession prayer that's coming up after this sermon. Just to say the words because Adrian instructs us to say them together. It's to our shame as well, isn't it? The people who don't love God and have causes that we might disagree with, they act with more passion and more devotion and even more honour than we do. It puts us to shame. And we have the words of eternal life. We should think and pray on this as we read the section. Because the people we're reading about here, God's people have violated the covenant. And they have not obeyed God. The slaves are just one example. So judgment is here. And God's people deserve it. This brings us to our second point. Just before chapters 36, and 30, 36, 37, and 38, God gives his second, therefore, decree of judgment. It's in chapter 35, verse 17. God says, therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Listen, I'm going to bring on Judah and on everyone living in Jerusalem every disaster I pronounced against them. I spoke to them, but they did not listen. I called them, but they did not answer. They did not answer, and they did not, uh, uh, did not listen, and they did not answer my call. This decree leads into a section which focuses really on two kings, Jehoiakim and Zedekiah. That is the third last and the last king of Judah. 
If you want an example of someone who does not listen to God, that's Jehoiakim. If you want an example of someone who does not answer the call of God, that's Zechariah. So let's start with Jehoiakim. We go to chapter 36, and that's our first reading today. And we're told that all this happens in the fourth year of the reign of Jehoiakim, which means it's about 605 BC. God asks Jeremiah to write down all the words of the prophecy about the judgment that is coming uh, to God's people. And so he does. And he sends his servant, Barak, into the temple to read out the words so that people can hear. And we're not told what reaction the people have to it, but we are told the reaction of one of the king's officials who works in the king's palace. He goes straight to the secretary's room and he reports what's been said. And the officials that are gathered there then call Baruch to come and read to them the scroll that he's just read down in the temple. Verse 16 gives their reaction. When they heard all these words, they looked at each other in fear. You see, God was saying judgment was coming. Unavoidable destruction was coming. The Babylonians would win. So the officials take the scroll from Baruch and they take it to the king. Now, how do you imagine that the king is going to react when he hears this devastating prophecy? Would he be like his father, Josiah, who when he discovered the word of God, immediately repented and turned back to the word? Do you think that's how he will react? Would he react like the king of Nineveh did? Remember in the book of Jonah, when the prophecy comes to the king of Nineveh and he says, oh no, this is devastating. Let us put on sackcloth and repent of our sins. Who knows? Maybe the Lord will relent and save us. You got animals? Put them in sackcloth too. Everyone in sackcloth, let's be sorry before this God. That's a foreign king. How do you think this king of Judah is going to respond to the devastating prophecy? We read it before, but chapter 36, verse 22. It was the ninth month and the king was sitting in the winter apartment with a fire burning in the fire pot in front of him. When Jehudai had read three or four columns of the scroll, the king cut them off with a scribe's knife and threw them into the fire pot until the entire scroll was burnt in the fire. The king and all his attendants who heard all these words showed no fear, nor did they tear their clothes. You notice the emphasis here on who does what. It's the king who listens to the word, and then it's the king who cuts the scroll. And then it's the king who throws the scroll into the fire. Gary Miller, who is the principal of Queensland Theological College, once said that this might be the most defiant act against the word of God in the Bible. You see, it's important for us to understand that when God says, you have not listened, it's not like he's saying, oh, you didn't pay attention when I was talking, or maybe I didn't speak loud enough, let me repeat myself. Oh, I'm sorry you misunderstood, let me clarify. That's not what God is talking about when he says, you have not listened. When God says, you're not listening, he means a defiant willful act of not taking God's word to heart. It's, if you like, the opposite of repenting. The people are going to follow this king who does not listen, and they themselves will not listen to God as well, and it's going to lead them into destruction. Oh, 
If only they had a king who listened to God's word and obeyed it. But they don't. It reminds us that the word of God is a precious gift. So let me ask you, as you read the word of God here, and as you look at the details, is God really some sky bully? Some angry God who's just out for revenge against his people? The word of God here in front of us is supposed to rouse our emotions. As we read a passage like chapter 36, we're supposed to be in despair that a king would be so defiant and so rejecting of God, even when disaster is about to come upon him. It's a tragic and terrible irony. Jehoiakim is the king who just does not listen. Now, Zedekiah is the king who does not answer God's call to him or to his people. I was trying to think about uh, how I would describe Zedekiah's character through chapters 37 and 38. And this is the best I've come up with. He's like a dying fish out of water. When it comes to fishing, I'm no expert. I'm, I'm no Des the fisherman. Our family went uh, out to a trout farm in the last school holidays and, I, and we caught a rainbow trout or a brown trout or something. I don't know. I'm, I'm not in my realm when I'm in fishing mode. But when you pull them in, you take the fish out of the water and they're about to die. They just sit there flip-flopping around. That's Zedekiah. Judgment is imminent. The Babylonians have surrounded the city and he keeps flip-flopping on what he wants from God. Let me give you a one-minute summary of chapters 37 and 38. Here we go. At the beginning, neither Zedekiah nor his people pay attention to the word of God. When the Babylonians leave Jerusalem for a moment to fight the Egyptians, Zedekiah then asks for a word from the Lord to see if this is going to last. God says Babylon is going to come back and they're going to destroy you. So the officials then put Jeremiah in jail. But then Zedekiah sneaks in and has a meeting with Jeremiah, and he says, do you have any words from the Lord? And Jeremiah replies, yeah, you're going to be destroyed. Zedekiah then lets Jeremiah go free. And Jeremiah goes to the temple and he preaches to the people in these last days that God is going to give salvation to those who surrender to the Babylonians. Zedekiah allows the officials then to arrest Jeremiah again and throw him into a pit. Then another official comes along. His name is Ebed-Melech. Remember his name, Ebed-Melech. And he says to the king, it's wrong that this has happened. You've done evil. You need to go and rescue him. And so the king says, okay, let's rescue him. Then Zedekiah allows the officials to arrest Jeremiah again. Zedekiah then sends for Jeremiah. Do you have a word? Tell it to me. Give it to me straight. Jeremiah says for the last time, surrender to Babylon or be given into their hands when Jerusalem burns. But Zedekiah Zedekiah says he's too scared of his officials and the other exiled Jews. It's tragic, isn't it? God has said over and over again, my people have sinned and deserve my judgment. They've rejected me. They've violated my covenant. They've not listened to me and they've not answered when I've called to them. In 
Just chapters 34 to 38 alone, God has told his people eight times what's coming. Babylon is going to destroy you. So is God just an angry God, full of revenge, a bully who lives in the sky? You know what? Some people use this as a barrier for exploring the Christian faith. But is that the God you read here in these words? Is he a feckless thug? Or has he shown himself to be incredibly patient, personally connected, relationally focused for his people, waiting for his people to answer his call, waiting for his people to repent, approving of them when they do repent? I mean, you would have had to have been particularly blind to not even see in the last chapter before Jerusalem falls that God is offering salvation to his people, even though this disaster is coming. The fire will come. And the question that is being offered is this. Will you surrender your life and trust God to save you through the flames? As Christians, we're not supposed to miss the pattern that points here into the New Testament. For we know when we read all of God's word that God is preparing a place more permanent than the promised land, more secure than Jerusalem, where the sin that destroys the relationship between God and people will itself be destroyed in judgment. And all people, every person on earth, is invited to heed God's call to repent their sins and to receive God's salvation. In the land of bushfires, we know what to do when a bushfire comes upon us. The safest place in a bushfire is the place that has already been burned. Why firefighters backburn to prevent and make barriers against fires, isn't it? Because when the fire reaches the place that's already been burned, it cannot go any further. If you can make it to that place that's already been burned, then you'll be safe. Well, the fire of God's judgment for sin has been poured out on Jesus at Golgotha. So that now, if you like, there is a cross-shaped, burnt area. And the good news of Christianity is all may come and stand where God's judgment has already been poured out. Anyone who stands in Jesus will be safe from the fire. We stand there in Jesus when we trust him at his word and we repent of our sins, not superficially, not shallowly, but we deeply repent of our sins and we surrender our lives now to Jesus as our commander. Those that ask receive God's salvation and his forgiveness forever. You see, every sinner who comes to Jesus in faith is one who has been snatched from the flames. You see, just as God's people needed to humble themselves and submit themselves to be able to be saved, so too every Christian must have an attitude of humility. There's no room for boasting. None of us can boast. Our salvation is all of God's work. It's not ours. Our job now is to take on the role of spiritual firemen, if you will. In the words of the Apostle Jude, to save others by snatching them from the fire. 
And so we finish our time together today with the words of terror in Jeremiah 39, where God unleashes the judgment just as he said he would. You can read the details in chapter 39, but I'm going to skip down to the end in verse 6. There at Ribla, the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and also killed all the nobles of Judah. Then he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with bronze shackles to take him to Babylon. The Babylonians set fire to the royal palace and the houses of the people and broke down the words of Jerusalem. These are terrible words. They're terrible words for us to read. But in the midst of this terror, there is hope and assurance for us. Because God is faithful in bringing the judgment that he promised, you know what? He's going to be faithful in bringing the salvation that he promised. And at the end of chapter 39, two names are mentioned among the saved. There's Jeremiah the prophet who had faithfully held on to the word of God. And there's also Ebed-Melech. Remember his name? The one who stood up with Jeremiah and told the king that he was being wicked. You see, our God is a God who saves from the flames. So how do you answer the one who says, I can't believe in your angry God? Well, in love, knowing their need before God... uh, I think you push back. I think you say, that's just lazy. You only believe that because you haven't read the Bible yourself. Tell you what, why don't you read the Bible with me and I promise that I will try and find an answer for every challenge you come up with in the Word of God. Because who knows, maybe they will read the Word of the Eternal God. Maybe they'll listen to His call. And maybe they will answer God with a request for his salvation. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonderful joy and news it is of your salvation. That you save even though judgment is there. We ask, Father, as your church, that we would be willing and ready to heed your call. To save others from the fire, knowing our salvation only came by Jesus through there too. Please help us to live so that you may be glorified and that many will come to know your grace and joy. And we ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen.